This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, this Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Yusin, director of the Center for Leadership here. My co-hosts, Jeff Klein and Ann Greenhall, are with me virtually, of course. Uh, we are taping this actually by Zoom. They are responsible for the McNulty Leadership Program, also at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I want to remind you that uh, new episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, channel 132. Don't forget to follow up with us on uh, Twitter at SXM Business. Let me just, uh, before we really get going here, bring Ann and Jeff um, into discussion. And Ann and Jeff, great to see you. We've survived another week. Uh, great to see you, Mike. One quick question. I'll start with Ann. Um, What's one factoid or one interesting development or something new that you've seen in the last week as we struggle through COVID-19 that you hadn't seen before? Well, I will refer, how about, to an article I shared with the staff in the leadership program, and the title is Leading in an Age of Anxiety. <laughs> and I thought it was uh, quite apropos because uh, we are in unprecedented times and uh, are all in our various ways, no matter where we are on the organizational chart, required to draw on our strengths and uh, ride our anxiety rather than be overcome by it. Yeah, good point. And I'm going to be a little bit lighthearted. Let's see, when everybody else is anxious, that's exactly when we can't display the fact that we're equally anxious. Exactly. <laughs> all right, Jeff, over to you. What happened in the last week that's a standout? But Mike, I think for me, one of the things I've been um, really kind of taken by is within groups or within organizations, uh, the impact that one person can have with with a small gesture. Um, You know, we often talk about leadership as the big acts and creating the vision and incredible results. Um, But at the same time, it's you know, I, I think for all of us in the workplace or even, in, you know, within our families um, who we're spending lots of time time with, um, it, it can often be the small acts that that really have the positive emotional effect um, and and that I'm, I'm coming to appreciate more and more uh, as true leadership. All right, everybody, don't forget the small acts of kindness. And <laughs> yes. so there it is. Here's my uh, uh, one thought we interviewed this week in another program, the chief executive of a, of a very large firm. And among the steps she has taken since uh, she pretty much sent everybody home back, uh, I think late February or early March, is to require every senior manager to have a replacement ready person working with them. So if they have to go into quarantine or heaven forbid something worse happens, a little bit like the tradition in the armed forces over many years, if you're in combat, you need to have a replacement ready person or actually two. And so uh, I was reminded of how important it is to ensure that we have, call it, to use a boring term, business continuity, even if some people are taken out of action. Actually, uh, I'm sorry, Ann, did you want to add to that? No, I just appreciate that, Mike, because uh, you are. I often have heard you talk about a battlefield promotion, and we need to be ready for that battlefield promotion. We do, and we've got to have people nearby who will step into the breach if need be. So with that, let me welcome our uh, extremely interesting guest here. I'm, in fact, honored to welcome the Honorable Dr. David Shulkin who, among other things, has served as the ninth secretary of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Uh, He had earlier been undersecretary of health, served under both uh, uh, President Trump and President Obama, uh, twice confirmed for his uh, high-level positions in the U.S. government uh, with a unanimous vote. How about that? And... uh, Secretary Shulkin, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to have you here today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So, uh, 
Scott, I'm going to start with uh, the here and the now. And I know that you are now involved with a firm that is providing consulting and guidance for other organizations struggling to get through this uh, terrible and amazing period. So why don't we just start uh, on that for a few minutes. Uh, what have you found in working with your clients? Uh, what, what are some of the roadblocks? What seems to be the advice most welcome when you render it? Well, first of all, I should just say that um, this is just such an extraordinary time where I've never seen everybody in the world focus their attention on one particular issue. And uh, so naturally, I think those of us who have spent our careers in leadership, those of us who have worked, in my case, in healthcare, uh, it's natural that people are going to come to you and start asking you what your thoughts are on this topic, on the issue of how do we deal with the pandemic. And so I started to get a large number of calls from different parts of the ecosystem, from people in government, from people in companies, from people in healthcare, from uh, you know people in organizations and universities. And frankly, I just wanted to do what others uh, are doing, which is to help and to be useful to try to make sure that we can protect people and uh, get people, when they are thinking now about reopening, to do that safely. And so uh, the questions that I, were, that I was getting were really pretty similar. And the body of knowledge that I was dealing with in terms of evidence-based knowledge and practical knowledge of running large organizations and being a physician uh, all came together so that I began to offer with a bunch of other colleagues who are also expert in this advice to employers and universities and colleges and all sorts of organizations on how to open up safely. So let me ask a, an, an effect for a, a, an illustration of that as follows. Uh, earlier in your career, I noticed that you were chief executive at Beth Israel Hospital in New York, Morristown Medical Center in northern New Jersey. And just for the sake of imagination here, uh, referencing no specific event necessarily, let's say the chief executive of Beth Israel calls you up and say, uh, says, Mr. Secretary, you, you were here a while back. Uh, our ICU is overwhelmed. Uh, <laughs> forecasts are, are pretty dire. And how do you then, with that as an opening question, as they then solicit your more general advice, how do you begin to respond? Well, I think this is the situation that frankly has faced every healthcare executive across the country because your job when you run an organization, particularly in healthcare, is to prepare for the worst case scenario. The worst day possible of running a hospital would be to be able to face the situation where you have patients who could potentially die and you don't have the resources to do it. And across the country, I think the leaders of our hospitals have done an amazing job creating surge plans, uh, having to do things that they've never done in their career, converting cafeterias and auditoriums into clinical space, uh, turning operating rooms into ICUs, using equipment in innovative ways, like what we saw with having to try to figure out how you could split a ventilator so that it could support more than one patient and creating um, protective equipment when the supply chain just simply wasn't there for their staff. So, so I think that um, this situation of, of um, leading organizations has never been more critical that leadership uh, has the right people on their team, has the right vision has the ability to communicate that vision and uh, I'm still on staff at uh, Mount Sinai uh, where where uh, Beth Israel is now part of the Mount Sinai system and so I have worked closely and followed this very closely as they've done an extraordinary job uh, at one point having close to 2,600 patients with COVID in their hospitals. Fortunately today that's much better but uh, nobody would have ever planned or thought of a situation like that, but they innovated uh, ad, on a ad as a ad, as needed basis and really did a great job. 
Great, thank you on that. Let's bring my colleagues in. Anne, why don't we start with you? All right, thank you. Secretary Shulkin, David, so nice to have this opportunity to speak with you. Uh, I realize that we recognize the peak only in hindsight, in retrospect, but as we prepare for a recovery period, what would be a top recommendation that you would give as one who consults with organization, organizations and helps them make the move from, let's say, red to yellow, metaphorically speaking? Well, Anne, I think you're right that, that so much of the situation that we find ourselves in is because we were so unprepared on the diagnostic front, on the testing front. And uh, there'll be plenty of time to go back and dissect that. But without having the ability to know who in the community has this infection and then isolate them, you really don't have a chance of stopping the pandemic. So we saw in February and March, we saw the virus spreading very rapidly. Our not values, the reproduction numbers of viruses, the values are two and a half to three, which means that for every person that was infected that they would spread it to two and a half or three other people who would then spread that to two and a half and three other people. Fortunately, now we find ourselves in a situation where we have an R naught value less than one, which means that the virus appears to be uh, moving in the right direction. But we could easily find ourselves in the same situation where um, if we're not continuing to be vigilant about identifying who has the virus, and continuing to isolate them and continuing to practice what we know does work, that this is going to come back in, in a, uh, whether you call it a second wave or just outbreaks of additional infections. And so I think it's very critical that we focus on what works. Uh, we know that social distancing, we know it's important to screen people, to identify people because this can spread uh, even in asymptomatic people. We know it's important that since this is mostly a airborne spread illness, to use masks when you're around people. We know social distancing is important. And we know that when you identify people that you must do contact tracing to make sure that people who are exposed also can self-quarantine. So I think if we focus on those things that we know that work, we can continue to make sure that this uh, virus is not nearly as disruptive as we have seen in the past um, until, of course, there are uh, either effective treatments or vaccines that are widely available to the general public. Mr. Secretary, I'm going to intervene for just a second. I do need to remind our listeners that they are listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, mm -hmm. Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein, and of course, I'm here with my friends and colleagues, Jeff Klein and Ann Greenhall. Our guest today is former U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dr. David Shulkin. So Jeff, over to you to pick up on all that we've been talking about. Thank you, Mike, and Secretary Shulkin, thank you for being on the show. Sure. Um, I, I want to ask you about the healthcare industry. I mean, there, there's never been a time, uh, certainly in my life, when the importance of the healthcare industry to the nation and to the world has been more apparent. Um, what is your assessment right now of the, the, the state and sustainability of healthcare? And, and what steps can leaders be taking uh, to make sure the industry is, is on as firm a foundation as possible? Yeah, um, yeah it's a pretty, pretty broad question and it's an important question as well. Um, in, in a time of crisis like what we've just recently been going through and still are living with COVID-19, crises have a way of identifying all the inefficiencies and the gaps in what many of us who have worked in healthcare a long time have been evident. But now I think everybody sees that we really have a very fragmented system that is not coordinated. We were not prepared to be able to share resources where they were needed. There was very little coordination initially between the federal, state, and local governments. We saw problems with access to care. We saw problems with people being able to uh, continue to get the care they needed when, it, when the facilities were 
not available to them. And we saw massive uh, problems in our supply chain. And so uh, now that these problems are clearly identified, I think this is a important opportunity for us to learn from it and to be able to start making some of those fixes in the health system that are required. Now, uh, I've, I've spent my career in healthcare, leading healthcare organizations. Um, I spent my first 10 years at the University of Pennsylvania where I was the chief medical officer of the Penn Health System and, uh, and a lot of time at Wharton as a Leonard Davis Institute fellow. And what I came to learn is, is that nothing changes quickly in healthcare unless there is an alignment between the clinical needs of the health system and the financial needs of the health system. And so now we've identified all these clinical problems with our health system. And now we have a, also a financial crisis in healthcare. During COVID-19, hospitals have been losing unprecedented amounts of money up to $60 billion a month is being lost by hospitals. Uh, we saw uh, almost um, not only the delay in elective surgeries, but we saw delays in preventative care. We saw delays in cancer care. We've seen just an overall more than 50% decrease in patient activity across the country. And now when you have these two factors, a broken healthcare system and a broken financing system for healthcare, uh, that's where change can really happen quickly. You put that in combination with the government's interest in decreasing regulation and what we've seen them do recently in terms of the telehealth regulations, in terms of uh, drug discovery regulations at the FDA. And you have all the ingredients to see healthcare move very, very quickly and evolve in a way that uh, I don't think we've ever seen, at least in my lifetime. So uh, I am very optimistic that we will see uh, major change over the next couple of years as a result of what we've just gone through. Secretary Shokin, is, um, could you comment a little bit about telehealth and the opportunities it, it provides within healthcare? Yeah, um, well, telehealth uh, is not a new technology. We've had it for over 40 years, a lot of people uh, have always used the telephone to provide medical advice, but even the video capabilities have been around for 40 years. This has been uh, slow to adopt because of regulatory barriers preventing people from practicing telehealth across state lines without getting licensed uh, and credentialed, and because of reimbursement barriers where the third-party payers, including the government, has not been willing to pay fair rates for telehealth services. Without that, as I said before, unless you have a financial and a clinical alignment, nothing happens in healthcare. And so uh, now what we see is that the COVID crisis was actually made almost perfect for telehealth as a solution. We did not want people going into hospitals or doctor's offices to expose themselves or to expose other people to the infection. We wanted them staying at home and we wanted them social distancing. So telehealth has become a extraordinary tool. Since government has um, relaxed both the regulations and have given parity in reimbursement to physical visits and telehealth visits, we've now seen a dramatic rapid adoption of telehealth. Uh, I actually did this three years ago when I was the secretary uh, and I was trying to provide access to veterans all across the country in many parts of the country where we didn't have a lot of healthcare professionals like rural areas. I wanted to use telehealth in a more rapid way, but the regulatory barriers uh, prevented me from doing that. So I actually, went to President Trump. I, I was practicing as even a secretary, as a physician taking care of veterans. So I brought my telehealth equipment to the West Wing and I asked the president whether I could show him how I cared for veterans in Grants Pass, Oregon, which was a rural part of Oregon. And um, I, I went through an exam with the president and he loved it. He just loved the technology and said, this is great. And I said, well, Mr. President, 
I'd like to do this for all veterans, but I need your help in getting rid of these regulations. And he was helpful to me. We got rid of all of the regulations three years ago in the Department of Veterans Affairs. So we were able to use telehealth across the country. And since then, we've helped tens of thousands of veterans using this technology. So I'm a big believer. I know it works. I know you, I know by fixing the regulatory and the reimbursement environment, that is the formula for getting this to work. And I believe this will be one of those permanent changes we will see uh, after the COVID crisis. We have been in conversation with former U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dr. David Shulkin, who now has been advising businesses and medical centers about reopening safely following the coronavirus lockdown. So welcome back, Mr. Secretary. And Anne, why don't you get thank us you. now in the second half here? Oh, thank you. All right, David, just to follow up a question, you made such a wonderful point that we have the confluence of uh, a clinical system that is broken. We have a financial need, major disruption, 50% decrease in the industry. I just would like to hear more about why you are optimistic that the change will be for the better rather than for the worst. The worst. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, uh, I'm optimistic because there's going to be change. Um, the biggest problem I have faced in my career is the stagnation, the unwillingness to change the behaviors that we've seen. And this is, this is very frustrating, uh, particularly coming from a background of health services research where I studied at Penn and um, you know, trying to move health systems to be safer and better and to have better quality. You can often see what needs to happen, but getting that to happen in healthcare is very, very difficult because of the complexity of the regulatory system, the financial system, and just really the conservative nature of people who work in healthcare. And so I think change is good. I am optimistic that given the opportunity to change, given the necessity to change, that we will move towards change that makes sense, that where the evidence shows that it does work, where uh, efficiencies and quality will um, prevail. But you are correct in your question, Anne, in that uh, it doesn't change doesn't always necessarily represent good change. And it's mm -hmm. possible that we will make bad decisions and we will bring a system that is currently broken to an even worse place. Uh, but that's where I think leadership makes such a difference. And I have uh, very strong confidence in the leaders that I interact with, that they will take this as an opportunity to get done some of the things that most of us who work in healthcare know need to be done and have been broken. Very good. So just for example, the gaps and inefficiencies and the inequality of uh, care, for example, that we might hope for a more equal distribution of care in the future. Yeah, I think, I, I think, of course, I think to me, uh, you have to start with access to care. Uh, we, in this COVID crisis, have seen a 114% increase in the uninsured, people who have lost their jobs. And unfortunately, many people, particularly at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, that may not get these jobs back very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so we now are going to be faced with a much bigger problem with access to care. Now, uh, we've always had, even before the COVID crisis, right. 30 million Americans who have been uninsured. We know about the issue of racial disparities in our communities. And so we have to fix access. What I uh, really found very uh, uh, energ energizing about being the secretary of the Department of Veteran Affairs was, was that my job was to provide access to every veteran that sought care in the VA healthcare system. Uh, it didn't matter whether they had insurance or what their ethnicity was or the race was. Uh, my job was to provide them the best care possible. And I believe that's the job of every healthcare leader to provide access to care. So we have to figure this out. 
And uh, it can't just remain the way that it is with such a dramatic increase in uninsured patients and frankly, uh, people not having the ability to pay. So, so this is going to require a public-private solution to be able to figure this out. Um, and I hope that our national leaders in Washington seize this as an opportunity to finally fix the broken parts of our healthcare system. Very good, thank you. Great, Jeff, over to you. So, Secretary Shulkin, I'd like to shift the conversation a little bit if we can. Uh, mm -hmm. You referenced uh, earlier, and Mike referenced also, your experience leading hospital systems. Um, and, and I'm I'm wondering as you're as you're now working with hospital systems um, and, mm -hmm. and and healthcare organizations around the world, what are some of the skills that you see really being called upon um, during the COVID nineteen crisis? So it, you know, in, in other words, um, what is more necessary than ever in terms of organizational leadership, um, and and perhaps what is new and emerging. Well, I think that there's really two common themes that I see that make successful leaders during um, during a crisis like this. The first is is to recognize that you can't do business as usual, and you have to put trust in the people that work for you. Uh, this is not a top-down type of situation. You have to allow people to do their job, in some cases, um, you know, break the rules to be able to focus on what's most important, and that's saving lives and doing things differently. And um, this is really the job of leadership to make clear what the goal of the organization is, to be clear about what the principles are that you're trying to adhere to, and then in some ways get out of the way and be a support person to allow that organization to succeed. The second trait of leaders that I believe are gonna be effective throughout this crisis are people who recognize that it's their job to care for their employees. In every pandemic that I've studied, the single, scarcest resource are the people, the people who work in healthcare. Uh, up to 40% of people who work in healthcare during the height of a pandemic will not be at work because they're either sick themselves, they're at home caring for people that are sick, or they're too afraid to come to work. And so the people that remain at work are working extra hard. They are under extreme stress. They're putting themselves and their families at risk, like we've seen. And it takes a leader to really make sure that their primary interest is in caring for those people, both the physical health, the mental health, the economic health of their workforce. And those leaders that are recognizing that and really um, expressing the gratitude and showing in action that they care about their workforce are the ones who are going to come out of this with strong organizations that are gonna be able to weather whatever comes down the road, whether it's a second wave or uh, some other type of pandemic that we have to face in the future. And I, I, I really appreciate both of those points. Thank you for uh, your description of them. When I think about the, the first point that you made in terms of you know, setting the goals, setting the values by which an organization is going to live by, and then getting out of the way, um, this this may be a, a slightly difficult question to answer, but as a leader, when do you know it's time to get out of the way? Are, are there any cues that you get from people or an environment that say, you know what, I'm I'm in this too deeply right now, and I need to pull back and demonstrate just the the kind of trust that you were talking about? Well, I, I think there are lots of things. Leaders have to be present, and they have to be observant and be introspective to be able to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there are, there are lots of clues. Hopefully people have people around them that they have encouraged and empowered to challenge them and to be able to say when they are the problem. So 
if you have people around you that are afraid to speak up and to tell you the truth and challenge you, that's a problem as a leader. But one of the other clues that you can look for is when you yourself as a leader are feeling overwhelmed. If everybody has to come to you for an answer and the organization is paralyzed until they hear from you that they're allowed to do it, that's a problem in leadership. There are other clues. Uh, you know, where problems go wrong and you have to look at yourself as the leader and own those problems. In the Department of Veteran Affairs, I just recently saw that there were two nurses in one of the hospitals who went to their job to take care of patients who have COVID-19 and there were no masks available. So uh, they went to another floor in the hospital where there were masks and they each took one to go to perform their job. Shortly afterwards, the police showed up and arrested them because they were being accused of stealing masks from areas that weren't theirs. Now that's a problem because that's setting an example where you're not caring for your people, you're not protecting them, you're not supplying them with the equipment that they needed and all they were trying to do was to do their job. And leadership needs to own that. That's a problem, that there's a problem in that organization uh, that allows that type of situation to happen. So, so I think there are lots of clues that leaders need to look for, uh, and hopefully it doesn't take them too long to discover if they're the problem. Thank you, David. Mr. Secretary, we're going to take again just a, a brief, uh, not even a break, but just a brief uh, reminder to our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Mike Yusim. I'm here with Anne Greenhall and Jeff Klein, and we are in active discussion with former U.S. Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Dr. David Shulkin. And Mr. Secretary, I've got two fairly specific questions picking up on what Ann and Jeff have just walked through with you. Uh, I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you're on the search committee for uh, maybe the chief medical officer or the chief executive officer of a hospital or a medical center. And back to what you had reported would be vital. Uh, you, you want people at the top who are willing to set the uh, direction, but they didn't get out of the way, empower people to get the job done. And also you want somebody who is really focused on supporting employees for them to get the job done more broadly. To make it very tangible, you've got a candidate in your office, one of maybe five finalists for a top position. How would you go about finding out if they are indeed uh, given to the principles you just uh, provided us? Well, I think it is um, a good idea to ask candidates about the values that you have when you're hiring somebody and to ask for examples of how they've lived their life by supporting those values. One of the questions that I think is most important the longer that I've been in leadership roles is to ask people, what is it that would cause you to stand up and resign from this organization what what are those things that that you believe in so strongly that you'd be willing to walk away from your job for and if people don't know how to answer that question then to me they don't have principles that they live by they don't have uh, a moral compass that they're able to articulate that is going to be important to be able to run an organization or to be in a leadership position uh, but certainly what I listen for when people are talking is whether they are talking about themselves or whether they're talking about how they support other people and how they have helped other people in their career um, and how successes have been team efforts rather than just personal efforts. So, um, but, you know, I, the more that I've been in leadership, the more that I've come to believe that it probably is the hardest thing to do to be able to select the right people to work around you. This is, um, this is not easy for me personally, and I've made uh, many mistakes in this regard and always tried to say, what could I do better at the next set of interviews to, to select 
better people. Um, and I'm still working on that. And my follow-up question on that, thank you on that, is when you're interviewing somebody at the top, it's a product typically of a fairly long career. They've been at it, especially for senior positions, uh, at least 10 or 15, maybe 25 years. I know you've thought a lot about careers in medicine and health. And with the benefit now of what we've learned after the coronavirus, it's gonna be different from what Tom Friedman referred to as BC before the corona, coronavirus. What recommendations would you have for places like our own university, uh, medical schools and beyond, nursing schools and beyond, for better developing the next generation of healthcare professionals for taking on these senior roles in the ways you've just described? Well, I, I think the job of um, universities is to produce people who can find solutions to the tough problems that our country faces. And uh, I believe that will be one of the positive things that come out of this pandemic. This has touched everybody's lives. Uh, this is something that people will always remember and they will remember both the fear that they had and also the optimism that they experience as we begin to find our way out of this crisis. And so I think what universities need to do is they need to uh, empower students when they leave to be able to take what they've learned and put it into action. I think you know the University of Pennsylvania, uh, where I trained, um, has done a good job of that, you know, particularly people that have gone out and used their medical knowledge or their financial knowledge and gone out and started companies and got out, gone out and tried to create solutions to problems. And I think other universities need to be uh, aware that um, the solutions of the future are gonna come from the people that we're training now. And so there's a big responsibility there. But I think universities and colleges are gonna be under extreme uh, pressure coming out of this crisis uh, with the disruption of, of the physical campuses that they've been experiencing and uh, the economic crisis that, 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 that people may not be able to afford, the education that they had wanted to pursue before this crisis. So they're gonna have to reinvent themselves and make sure that they really are part of um, demonstrating that education and the education that students will receive at their campuses uh, does translate into meaningful and practical um, implementation of real jobs that uh, are gonna impact and improve our society. And just to make a comment as I turn it back to Ann and Jeff for a, a final round of uh, questions from them, uh, change is coming, not only in how medical centers or the Veterans uh, Administration worked, but change is also coming in uh, how we train, how we educate, how careers uh, develop. So, Anne, over to you. Great. All right, Secretary Shulkin, David, a follow-up. At a really high level, we're seeing uh, the collision of two interests. On the one hand, desire to get the economy back and rolling. And on the other hand, a desire to keep people safe. <laughs> uh, so how, as, as a leader of an organization or government, how do you go about uh, weighing those two competing interests? Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think they're competing. I, I think both can be done safely. And um, this is my experience in so many uh, public issues that are shaped, it, it's actually easier to take a position that's on one of those spectrums. We should stay shut or we should completely open up and do, do what we want. Uh, and, you know, this feels very much like my times in Washington. There are people on the, in the Department of Veteran Affairs political battles that wanted to either completely privatize the VA or completely say that 
the VA should be 100% government run with no private influence. And I was always in the middle where <laughs> I felt that the solution was um, a integrated system where you take the best of what the Department of Veteran Affairs does, which is extraordinary care for veterans for particular uh, conditions and um, disease states, and you take the best of what the private sector can do that the VA can't replicate, and you create a system that really meets the veterans' needs. And in the question that you asked, Anne, that's that's where I fall in the middle, which is, mm -hmm. which is yes, you can open up. We can go back and start to regain some of our prior life, but you have to do it in a way that's different than before COVID. We have mm -hmm. to do it knowing uh, what works to prevent this virus, because the virus isn't going away right. in any scenario that I can see for the next 12 months, even with the rapid um, development of vaccine. By the time that 350 million Americans get a vaccine, it's at least going to be 12 months, if not longer. And so, so if we open up in a smart way, where we avoid, uh, you know, people getting too close to each other, where we wear masks, where we do appropriate screening, where we isolate people that may be sick and do contact tracing, where we use proper hygiene, uh, I believe that we can begin to open safely, but it's going to be in a gated, in a phased-in approach where we can also look at the data. Now the testing is more rapidly is more rapidly available and plentiful, uh, so that we can identify if we're moving too fast or we're making mistakes, and then slow the process down and isolate people that are infected. And if we don't do this, I think we're going to just be doing a ping-ponging back and forth yeah. between opening and closing. Mm, very good. All right, thank you. Jeff. Jeff, over to you. Uh, Secretary Shulkin, I'd, I'd like to ask you uh, a little bit more of a, a personal question. And, and when you think about the, the set of experiences you've had, and, and most recently uh, serving as the Secretary of uh, Veterans Affairs, I, I'm wondering, as you look back upon your career, what were some of the formative experiences that prepared you from, for such a role? Well, I, I think it starts with, I was very fortunate, I think, to um, get a very solid foundation in both medicine and research and in business. And um, once, you, once you have a good solid foundation, then you're able to build upon your career through life experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I spent 10 years at Penn as the chief medical officer, and then I went out and I did a startup company. And you know, even as being secretary, where I had a $200 billion budget of 425,000 employee workforce, I still say the hardest job I ever had by far was running a startup company. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, doing, doing, changing the type of position, the type of job you have, uh, taking risk, challenging yourself are really those high growth experiences during, during one's professional career. So, uh, I've been a physician, I've been a researcher, uh, you know, a entrepreneur, I've worked as a medical school dean. Uh, I've led physician organizations, hospital organizations, and then, you know, most recently in government. And so each of those challenging professional experiences, I think, all have contributed to improving my skill sets and improving my ability to understand the perspectives of problems from different parts of the uh, political and healthcare ecosystems. And if I can just ask a follow-up there, as you, you know, as you move from environment to environment, from university to uh, startup, from the business sector to the, the government sector, um, what are some of the ways that, that, that you, you try to understand, um, even diagnose the differences in decision-making style or the differences in the rhythms of an organization so that you can match your skills to 
you know, that the dominant norms and cultures of a particular organization. Yeah, it's a really, that's a really important point. Um, you, you know, each of those organizations do have different cultures. They look at the world differently. Um, the consistency among all of those experiences that I've talked about has been that I've always identified myself and viewed myself through the lens of being a physician. And it's one of the reasons why in every job I've ever taken, I've always continued to put a white coat on and a stethoscope and see patients. So as CEO of Beth Israel or the president of Morristown Medical Center, the undersecretary of health for the Department of Veteran Affairs, and even as secretary, I would continue to see patients. I'd walk into the clinics uh, and I was no longer the secretary. I was just Dr. Shulkin and I would take care of patients. And that would ground me in trying to understand what I was doing in those jobs and what was important and what my values and the mission of what I was trying to accomplish, as well as understanding the perspective of the people who worked around me, the nurses, the pharmacists, the doctors, the people who took care of the environment, the food service workers that I interacted with. Um, so I think that was the common theme. But 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 each environment I, I worked in, whether it was academic, startup, government, hospitals, physicians, were very, very different. And clearly the most different was government. Um, I, by the time I entered government, I knew healthcare backwards and forwards. I'd run very large organizations as the chief executive, but there was nothing that prepared me for how government made decisions. And I used to refer to it as, uh, for those listeners that are Seinfeld fans, um, there was a Seinfeld episode where George, everything was going poorly for him. So he decided that whatever he was going to say yes to, he would say no to. Whatever he was going to say no to, he would say yes to. So it was a opposite day. And his life turned out to be much better by doing it that way. And that's the way I felt in government. Everything that made sense to me from private sector position didn't work in government and everything that worked in government wouldn't have worked in the private sector. So I really had to relearn a completely different way of managing as a government official that frankly made no rational sense to me, but that was the way the culture was. So Mr. Secretary, extremely interesting commentary. I do want to remind the listeners, actually mentioned to listeners that you recently authored a book on touching on some of the topics we've talked today. I want to get the title in. It's it, Here's the title. It shouldn't be this hard to serve your country. Uh, our broken government and the plight of veterans. Uh, so that's for future reference. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us today. Really interesting, perfect timing in terms of what's most on people's minds as well. And for those that would like to find out more about you directly, is there a website you'd recommend for those, uh, in addition to finding your book on Amazon.com, obviously, are there other ways that people can learn about you? Yeah, uh, let, let me just say, I do hope that some people read the book because uh, everyone consistently says that they just cannot believe the story that uh, I tell as I transition from private sector to working for President Obama and then President Trump. It's a it's an incredibly uh, uh, interesting journey that I took uh, working for those different presidents. Uh, but to get information on me, my uh, uh, please follow me at David Shulkin on Twitter. Um, my website is Shulkin Solutions. And for those who, shulkinsolutions.com. And for those who uh, are interested in my perspectives on what's happening now in the COVID situation, shulkinblog.com, where I write uh, on a regular basis about different things happening with the COVID crisis. All right, doctor, thank you very much. Yeah. Appreciate you coming on the program. And now we have a custom. The three anchors here to reflect on what we've talked through our after action review. So, uh, and only with a couple minutes to go, a point or two we really ought to hang on to. As, our, as the product of our conversation with the ninth, the ninth Secretary of Veterans Affairs. 
Well, I very much appreciated Secretary Shulkin's comments about what it takes to exercise leadership against the background of a pandemic. So first to recognize that we are not in a situation in which we can carry on uh, as if it's business as usual. We need to trust those around us. And moreover, we really need to care, care for our um, colleagues, our staff members, and finally, know when it's time to get out of the way. <laughs> Very good. Jeff, your thought. Thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, I, I think to build on what Anne uh, was describing there, one of the things I really appreciated from Secretary Shulkin um, is, is this focus on, on core values and a core identity, right? And whether it's in a hiring process where you're selecting a top executive or during a transition where you're moving from uh, one industry to another, having a very strong understanding of your own identity as a leader and the values which undergird that uh, serve you. Uh, Jeff, thank you on that. I've got two points to add. Number one, this came up earlier in our conversation today. Uh, we've got to be ready for the surge. Who knew it was coming, but we do need stockpiles. We need preparation in advance. And I think it's a more general statement about the vital importance for universities, medical centers, and the country to get ahead of the curve for the risk to lie ahead before they uh, smack us in the face as they have with this one. And then the second and final point, uh, you both referenced this, uh, you can't do anything um, in a position of leadership except through other people. So you need a great team, and you've got to recognize that the frontline employees are really vital for getting your job done. So. Thank you, Annette. I want to thank the secretary again for his great commentary. You got a question uh, about this program, you know where to find us. We're at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can get to us on Twitter. And once again, a special thanks uh, uh, for Dr. David Shulkin, our guest. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 